folks, and welcome or welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, I'm again. And this podcast was brought to you, among others, by Emil Gorgis, a Tokyo real estate agent who specializes in serving international or mixed nationality families looking for the perfect family home. So Emil's an Australian. He's been living here in Japan for the past two decades, eight years of which he's been actively buying, selling, and managing real estate properties in the city on behalf of his own family and a great many happy clients. And he also acts as a mortgage broker on behalf of his clients. So his company has a dedicated loan officer in many of the Japanese mega banks. And if you're a regular listener, you probably already know him from our JREP, the Japan Real Estate Experts panel sessions. So you're probably already aware that the man is an absolute fountain of wisdom on all things related to real estate in Japan, and in particular to family homes, the greater Tokyo metropolitan area and mortgages. And most importantly, he's incredibly generous with his time and advice, which he's more than happy to provide at no cost or commitment to anyone asking. So if you've been thinking about buying your home in Tokyo, but you've been sitting on the fence for a while, or if you just want to have a chat in English with a real expert, drop him a line on emil.gorgis, that's E-M-I-L dot G-O-R-G double E S Emil dot Gorgis at Tokyo Realty dot JP. Hit him up today and start exploring your options. All right. So today's episode, if you recall about a month ago, I've published a conversation that I've had with a US based entrepreneur who's in the process of moving to Japan with a Japanese wife, and he's interested in setting up a similar business to our own in Nagoya. Um, we had a look under the hood at NTI, our own company. We spoke about what it takes to start up a real estate consultancy business in Japan, uh, what sort of loans are available for investment, market fundamentals, how to read Japanese property listings, taxes, and so on and so forth. And we'll link to that episode again in the show notes today. So today's episode is the second part of that conversation. And in it, we discuss a bunch of topics, one of the main ones being team building and professional relationships, which like many things in Japan can be similar in some aspects to other countries, but can also be very different in other aspects. So who do you need on your team? How and when to contact agents, property managers, lawyers, accountants, uh, maintenance and renovation companies, etc. We also touch a little bit on resale values. When is it advisable to sell an investment property and why? And a few other topics. So really good deep dive again, and hopefully a guide to anyone looking to um, not only set up a real estate consultancy business in Japan, but maybe also just to do some deals on your own if you're that way inclined. So enjoy the conversation and I'll see you again on the other side. Okay. Cool. So we were talking about um, building your team, right? Property managers and so forth. Exactly. Yep. Um, yeah. So basically, we've ever since last time we spoke, um, I've continued to work on doing my research on the census data, identifying the, the areas where it seems feasible for us to invest in. Yep. And now I'm sort of like trying to put a list together of um, real estate agents, property managers, I mean, probably a lawyer, accountant financing although that's highly unlikely from based on our last discussion so mm-hmm. I, I just basically wanted to know if if i mean here in the states usually we do a lot of a lot of that research online uh we look through blogs you know um, um you know any 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 type of reviews so i i just wasn't sure in japan how what's the what's customary in japan when you're reaching out to 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 these players 
Okay, so first of all, I'd separate the lawyer and accountant because they're going to be with you for the long haul. Mm -hmm. So those two, um, well, pro lawyer meaning um, they're called Shiho Shoshi here, judicial scriveners. Um, so, I mean, they're lawyers, but they're lawyers that focus primarily on property transactions, like a conveyancing lawyer in Australia. I'm not sure what they're called in the States. Okay. It's like a, pro a probate. I think over here, they're, they're, the equivalent will be a probate attorney. Okay. I I'm not sure. So, I mean... Each real estate agency that you work with will also have their own um, their own scrivener that they would um, recommend. And in cases where you're selling a property, the buyer gets to choose um, which scrivener to use. So in those cases, you'll have to go with what the buyer wants. But when you're buying the properties or when your customers are buying the properties and you're doing it on their behalf, you get to choose. So it's good to have a property lawyer that you can work with on a regular basis. Okay. Um, because um, they'll be, and, and I'll send you, I'll send you um, references to the ones that we regularly work with, um, but they're going to be strictly Japanese. So it'll need to be your wife that, um, that communicates with them. Excellent. Thank you. And the advantage there is that they've already got the templates that we've sort of um, educated them on using throughout the years. They make it simple. They don't ask for too many documents. And they don't ask for, um, um, I mean, like if you contact a Japanese lawyer that's never worked with a foreigner before, they'll start talking about um, uh, Hanko and, and all kinds of documents that foreign buyers will not be able to provide and you need to teach them that they need to work with a notary public instead of that so we've done all of that with the guy that I'll refer to you so he's already got the uh, the blueprint of how to handle a foreign buyer or a seller excellent um, but still only in Japanese okay okay so I'll, I'll send you their contact details and then your wife can contact them and start the conversation Great, I appreciate it. No problem. And then when you've got an actual deal that's about to happen, just um, send me a reminder, and I'll also send you. Or I can do it. Um, I can do it um, now while we're doing the while she's talking to them. I'll also send you the uh, document templates that we usually use. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. And the the Shihoshoshi, the lawyer that you'll be speaking to, he'll have the Japanese version of that. So I'll send you the English version, which is the one that the buyers or sellers. Um, get signed and notarized in English. And then for each and every transaction, um, the lawyer will provide a version of that in Japanese. And then your wife will be able to work with the, the template that I provide and with the template that he provided and just um, do an ad hoc translation per transaction. Okay. So that's on the lawyer side. On the accountant side, I'll also um, connect you with one that most of our customers work with. Um, you'll also be able to use them for your own um, for your own company setup if and when you set up the company. Um, but more it's, important, it's looking more like it's looking more like we're probably gonna gonna start the the company. I mean, just as a, just wanted to throw that out there, it's looking more like we'll we'll probably it'll probably work out best for us that way from the start. Okay, so I, I mean, were you planning to first do a few transactions for your own portfolio just to? Um, get a couple of uh, a couple of deals under your belt so you know how it all works or were you going to go straight with clients oh no we're, we're planning on doing a, a couple of transactions for our own okay. portfolio first okay so i mean the accountant really comes in um i mean on an individual level the accountant comes in after you've done your first 
few purchases. You're not gonna not really gonna need him um, from the get go. But if you are gonna be setting up a company, um, then yes, you can work with him on the best structure that might work for you. And so the guy that I'll be referring you to, um, he communicates well in English via email. Um, and he speaks rudimentary English um, if you talk to him on the phone or on Zoom. Okay. Um, but for the first couple of calls, if you'd like, I can I can join you and just um, just maybe help kind of translate um, to simpler English. Just I've done this with him a few times before. Okay. And then if for any reason um, you feel that he doesn't. Um, he doesn't get what you're trying to do or, or anything looks like it's becoming a bit more complicated and there's other accountants as well, but they charge more. So he's, um, he's very affordable and very easygoing and um, he doesn't complicate things, but if you've got a, I don't know, like a really complex cross-border company branch office set up and you want to claim costs in this country against uh, profits in another country, then you might need a, uh, somebody who's a bit higher level than that. Okay. Um, so I suggest we start with a simple one, maybe an initial consultation. He'll only charge for, I think, um, one hour, maybe $70 a one. Okay. And that's, that'll yeah, be, uh, that'll be just, just good to do some brainstorming with him and just see um, what he's advising to do on the company set up front. Okay. Okay. So those two... Um, again, the lawyer aside, because the lawyers, you might occasionally need to use a different one, but the lawyer and the accountant will basically be people that you're working with on a regular basis. So they do, they do come into the team building uh, discussion with agents and property managers. It's going to be a lot more fluid than that. So because the market here is very big and because a lot of the agents um, that you'll be working with will be working for larger companies. So the fact that you've worked with the agent uh, on a particular deal uh, and you might have had a good experience doesn't mean that he's not going to be reshuffled to a different city or moved to a different company. And then the company that used to employ him might not have somebody as good as him for your next deal. And also, you'll be contacting um, listing agents for each particular deal that they've got listed. So the process that we that we used to in other countries, like for example, again, my experience is mostly in Australia, aside from Japan, but in Australia, for example, I would be contacting a particular agent, explaining what I need, um, giving him my criteria and sort of sending him out to, to research properties for me and find them wherever they may be listed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can do that in Japan to some extent, um, but a lot of the agents that will have properties listed that you might be interested in will not want to work with other agents. So the, the process of having your agent contact the listing agent might work sometimes, but on many occasions, the selling realtor will prefer to sell direct and not via a buyer's realtor because then they have to share their commissions with them. Okay. Um, so it's usually a better idea to, at least for the first, I'd say, year or two, just go for the interesting deals, whichever agent happens to have them listed. Once you've concluded a, a deal with a particular agent, then you'll already be in a sort of relationship status with them. And you can say, OK, well, you know, we've got other customers or we're interested in other properties. Can you help us find? And then 
it'll be a smoother relationship. But if you try from the get-go to contact somebody and initiate a relationship where, which is not related to a particular deal, um, most of them will not really give you the time of day because A, they're not used to working with foreigners, B, the properties that they're listing are pretty cheap in most cases, mm-hmm. especially the ones that you're going to be buying in cash. And the market moves very quickly here. So they're not really, they don't really have any vested interest in, you know, starting a conversation with you and talking about what you might want or you might not want because they're going to have a buyer down the track in a couple of days time is going to buy whatever they got listed anyway. Okay. That's very helpful because I, I was probably going to take the same route that you were describing in Australia. Is that, that's how it is in the U.S. also. Yeah. Um, it works here if you're talking about um, fancier, more expensive properties, entire buildings, hotels, that kind of thing. Then, yes, then you can, from the get-go, form a relationship with somebody capable. But the, um, the cheapos and the cash cows, they, just, they go so quickly that the agents are not really interested in building any relationship before they've got a deal or two with that person. Okay, that, that makes sense. Yeah. It's just, it's a really fluid market. I mean, an attractive property, uh, especially on the investment and especially on the cheaper side, attractive property is usually spoken for within a few days or maybe two weeks at most from listing. Uh, And the agents are just fielding constant inquiries and just, you know, receiving constant applications to purchase. So most of them on the cheaper end of the scale just don't have the time to spend in, in building relationships. Okay, and it, and is it is it basically goes through a bidding sort of process then when they have that many applications coming through? Um, it's basically first offer, um, first offer which the seller has accepted uh, will be the one that they'll go with, and if they end up receiving a higher offer down the track, then they'll give the first person a chance to raise their price. So they're not going to just say, "Oh, sorry, we sold it to somebody else." They, they do it in a more structured, proper manner here. So. Whoever submitted an application first, I mean, the seller might delay responding to the application because they want to wait a few days to see if they'll get a higher one. But once they've received it and accepted their price of, you know, they've counter-offered and there's been a bit of negotiation, once the, the offer or the revised offer has been accepted, then that's pretty much going forward. Uh, if a higher offer is going to come in down the track, they'll give you the chance to raise your price. Okay. And there's no, um, there's no overbidding here basically you almost never see anything beyond the listed price okay so it's always the listed price or lower it really sounds like it's it's straightforward over there in japan it is once you get past the language and cultural gap it is Um, but some things are just done a little bit differently so you need to get used to it like for example there's no conveyancing process so the 10 percent earnest money the down payment that you make when you sign the contract that goes directly to the seller there's no there's nobody holding that fund in escrow or anything of that sort yeah Um, i got a bit skirmish when i I read about that i was like what i mean it's just it's just different yeah so the, the, there's a couple of things that you need to get your head around, but it is a pretty straightforward process. And with property managers, so same sort of story. Um, you can and will be building relationships with property managers, and you definitely want to have um, the same one or two or three property managers that are serving you in each particular city at least. I wouldn't go with the national ones because they cost more 
and the national coverage doesn't really help much because they got different offices and different people working in different cities. So um, even if you go with a property manager that's got a national coverage, the Nagoya office might be really good. But when you do an Osaka deal, then that agent might be crap. So it, it doesn't, okay. there's not really any big advantage. They don't have any um, uh, standard level of practice across all of their branches or anything of that sort. So you want to work with local property managers in each city that you're um, working in. And on that front as well, um, I mean, look, I can refer you to property managers that we work with in, in particular cities, but to be perfectly honest, a large part of our admin work is constantly replacing them because they start out good and then they get too busy and they don't do the job properly and we end up replacing them with somebody else and we might work with two or three of them in a different city because uh, they perform well this month and maybe not the next month. So... When you purchase a property, if it's already got a tenant in it, there's going to be a property manager in place, right? Okay. So to make things simpler for you, it might be a good idea um, to just start with just leaving the same property manager in place and work with whoever that happens to be. And again, those are strictly Japanese companies. So your wife will have to be the contact person for all of that. Um, and then see, I mean... They'll be performing, I mean, you, you can't really test them until you have a vacancy or, or something serious that needs attending to. I mean, if it's just a matter of collecting the rent and depositing it into, an, into your account, they're all good. Um, once you get a vacancy and you need to repopulate the unit, then you'll find out how effective or professional they are or aren't. Okay. And, and, and what's the standard for the length of a contract with the property managers in general? Um, it's basically ongoing with a certain notice to terminate it. So you're supposed to let them know, I think, usually three months before you want to replace them. Okay. But having said that, if, for example, a unit became vacant and it's been standing vacant for eight months and it looks like they're not doing their job, then you can pretty much tell them, look, I'm, I'm just going to send, I'm just going to appoint another property manager. They're probably not going to insist on that, um, on that three month termination period if they've already if they've already stuffed up the last eight months or what okay and and are they flexible in terms of um the contractors or handyman that they use for the property or 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 does the owner have the flexibility to use their own or they choose to you can always ask them for so they'll be supplying uh, maintenance or renovation uh, offers from whichever company they work with if you don't like it, you've always got the option to first ask them to ask that contractor for a discount because that price doesn't seem reasonable to you. Mm -hmm. And also you can always just get a, another estimate and, and just make them work with whoever you found. Okay. So that's not an issue, but there's a time sensitivity there. If you've got a tenant in place that needs something fixed quickly and you're going to spend a month getting um, second opinions, um, that tenant might just leave so if it's a if it's a matter of 100 or 200 bucks extra and there's an actual tenant in the property um then i i wouldn't and also if it's a let's say it's a renovation if it's a two thousand dollar renovation and you're losing out on months of potential rent just trying mm -hmm. to discount 100 or 200 bucks it's just not worth it absolutely um, but if the price seems exuberant then yes definitely get a second opinion And also, I mean, you want to factor in how long it takes you and then 
put a price on your, in this case, on your wife's time, because she's going to be the one researching alternative maintenance companies and getting estimates and organizing for them to visit the property, to inspect it, to provide the estimate. So if she's going to be, again, spending, you know, two weeks for, for saving 100 or 200 bucks, I don't know if that's worth your time. So case by case, I would say. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to, right now, I'm trying to put as much time as possible doing all the ground research. I know she's going to be busy dealing yeah. and talking with people. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, just thinking about how we work, um, there's going to be ebbs and flows. Like when you're looking for your first few customers, you're going to be a lot busier. And once you get a lot of work going, then she's going to be a lot busier and, and it, it just comes in waves. So, um, yeah, I mean. How, how has that been in your experience ma managing that? I know this is a little bit off topic, but I was just, just curious. Um, staff is really important, right? Like we've, we've had our delays in the first few years hiring staff and we're still paying the price to that day with backlogs that we, we should have, we should have really factored for our growth a lot earlier. Um, so I would say, even if it doesn't look like your income is going to be immediately justifying it, I would definitely start with a couple of part-timers, one on the Japanese side, one on the English side. Um, because on your end, I don't know how you're planning to do your marketing and recruiting of clients, but you're probably going to be, you're probably going to have to have a, an online presence or provide a lot of written content for people to, to just, um, just for people to, you know, get their hooks into. And so you can, you can share your information and share your expertise. And, and in the beginning, when you don't have any customers, that's all you do. So it's not a big deal. But once you do start having some customers, then your job becomes also to manage those existing customers. So the marketing, like, for example, we I did the first year only marketing, and then we started getting some customers in. And then when I was focusing on servicing those customers on the English side of the business, then marketing just didn't exist because I couldn't be doing both of those things at the same time. And um, same goes with my wife. So when she was establishing relationships and talking to agents, we didn't have too many properties to manage. Everything was okay. Once we started getting clients in and there was constant admin work to do on the Japanese side, especially with the property managers, it's a nightmare because they'll each be, I mean, one, two, three properties, not a big deal, but basically there's no um, set standard for the way they report, right? So they'll each be sending in their monthly reports in completely different formats. Um, some of them by PDF, some of them by email, um, some of them will actually have numbers that you can copy and paste into the statements that you're managing, but some of them, it's just going to be like scanned graphic text and so forth. So managing all of that. And then also once maintenance and renovations and vacancies start happening, um, there's a lot to keep track of. So you definitely will need an office worker on the Japanese side. Um, even part-timer, uh, I would say from the get-go or close to it, like don't make the mistake that we've made of waiting two or three years to get people on. Okay. Um, but that's, I mean, that's entirely dependent, obviously, on your savings and how much income you think you'll be able to generate. Okay. Oh, thanks for the, for the gems there. Ziff, appreciate that. No worries. That, that's what we're struggling with the most, actually, is admin. Um, we, we've, we're, we've come to the party very, very late on hiring. We, we were bootstrapping it for um, far too long. Oh, Ziff, I wanted to ask you a question about the, the I know in Japan, the focus seems to be on, on cash flow, right? Because it's not really like equity in terms of the, the actual building itself. 
what, when do you decide uh, uh, to sell? I was, I've been trying to kind of like, because I know some of the properties have a, a lifespan of 20 years, others are 50 years. So I've been trying to wrap my head around that. Um, we used to have the Benjo. So the reinforced concrete um, buildings, which is most of the cash cow properties are mansion units in, in reinforced concrete buildings, right? So the cheaper ones, at least. So these have an official tax depreciation lifespan of, I think, 47 years from memory. Um, we used to have our benchmark of, you know, advising to people that it might be time to start thinking about reselling them um, around the 40-year mark. As the, uh, as the building gets older, maintenance and, and building monthly building fees get higher, and then you'll see that the yield just shrinks. It's not as attractive as it was when you purchased it. Mm -hmm. um, but these days, there's talk of a new legislation coming in. It was supposed to be coming in next year, but they've sort of moved it back to an uncertain date. But I'm sure it will be coming in sooner or later. And that's going to be putting a lot more of an onus on um, owner unions that are managing buildings that are 40 years and older. And there's going to be a certificate system for a qualified and non-qualified building. And what that will probably do is... The owner unions that will want to apply for the certificate um, will have to raise their building fees because they'll have to do a lot more maintenance to comply. Whatever the legislation will include is not clear yet, but there's going to be more than what they're doing now. And on the other hand, if they choose not to go for the certificate, then there's suddenly going to be, I think, there's going to be a market for certified and non-certified properties and the price difference might be huge. And we're already noticing properties that are... 35 years and older, um, their prices seem to be dropping quite rapidly in the last couple of years, which hasn't been the case before that. So I think a lot of people have got their mind on that sort of system that might be coming in. So these days, we advise to our clients um, not to go for anything beyond 30 years old at the time of purchase. Mm -hmm. um, just because thinking ahead, I mean, if you hold it for less than five years, it's not really enough time to, to accrue any income from it. Mm -hmm. And it's not really a flipping kind of market where you might be able to sell it at a profit. I mean, you, cash flow is basically all you've got here. So we advise our clients to go for 30 years or younger on the concrete blocks. If they own the entire structure, which is usually going to be a wooden or steel framed wood apartment building, like say up to two or three floors, maybe up to 15, 18 units, mm -hmm. um, those have an official tax depreciation life cycle of, I think, 23 years, 20, 20 something years from memory. And maintenance does tend to build up more rapidly after they reach um, 25 years of age or so. Okay. So for those properties, we usually advise our clients not to go for anything older than 20 years. Uh, 15 is better. Okay, great. And then if they're holding them that long where the properties reach those ages, whether it's the concrete or the wooden structures, and then we just, we give them a reminder that it might be time to consider reselling it because um, um, value and yield might be sort of uh, maybe not falling off a cliff, but definitely shrinking more rapidly as the buildings get beyond those points. Okay, right. And the, I mean, it's always a lot easier to sell a property to a local Japanese buyer because they don't expect yields as high as foreign buyers expect them. So if you've purchased a property that was netting, let's say net before tax, it was you know, making 6%, 
and then five, six, seven years down the track, it's gone down to 5%. Um, foreign buyers might not be interested in it because they've got a lot of exchange rate fluctuations to consider and it's a, it's a remote market for them and they've got extra overhead by, uh, by virtue of having to deal with you, which is an added layer on top of the agent and the property man. But Japanese buyers don't need to think about that. So they'll be happy with lower yields usually. Okay, that's good. So unless you have a client who's particularly interested in purchasing a particular property, um, just just sell them on the open market. Awesome. I know we kind of wish that we could get there earlier, but they're still processing my visa. I know that um, there there are talks now of opening up. Uh, yeah, yeah. The borders for for uh, group tours, I believe, if I read correctly. Uh, that one I have. The I know that year? they started um, allowing business visa holders and students in. Uh, Correct. From, yes. Today, right? Or yesterday? Yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. Um, yeah. So I think the um, I think the groups and then the normal tourists will be coming in soon. But I mean, having said that, fingers crossed that we know don't go through a sixth or seventh wave suddenly. But mm, yeah, if all proceeds according to plan, yeah, hopefully we'll see uh, people coming in in a couple of months. I know, I know you're hosting your event too. I was talking to my wife. We're just going to miss it in December. We're going to get there in late February. You're going to miss it by about, a, about two uh, months. Oh, we hope to have it every year. That's the first one. If it goes well, uh, we'll be here next year as well. Great. All right, Ziv. Well, you, you've, you've covered all, all the questions that I had. Awesome. Really appreciate it. Thanks, thanks a lot for all your help. No worries at all. And, 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 and I'm so sorry again. I... I Totally got thrown out by daylight saving. Oh, no, saving no, don't worry. Here. Today's good. Um, and just send me an email reminder later to uh, put you in touch with the accountant and the uh, property lawyer. Okay, we'll do. All right. Good speaking with you. All right. Likewise. Take care, Zip. You too. Okay. So again, good talk. Hopefully some insights uh, for all of you out there who are thinking about building your own team in Japan for real estate investment uh, and or portfolio management. Hope you found some value in it. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis, or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa, and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company, and you've got any sort of business or visa-related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com and he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku!